Yeah, nothing else happened this week that was talked about a lot. The big thing this week was definitely the stimulus package and how much was put into the stimulus and the amount of dollars that are now in circulation. What are your thoughts? About that, the biggest news story of the week, the stimulus package that was approved, the Biden stimulus package. What are my thoughts? Yeah, um, glad you asked, because that's the thing. So do you want to talk about the Microsoft Act? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech and stuff on the Half Caucasian podcast. Question. What's your best performing stock of the week i resent you asking me that question <laughs> how is gamestop doing um it's funny you should ask because it's doing it's doing really well you know you mock me for being a value investor <laughs> it's really funny and i kind of stand by what i said last time which is this is this is the future of um of markets it's kind of all the veil's been lifted now and you get to just see how these things pan out Um, it's absolutely not the future markets it's just a a single quirk based on a meme stock that was initially a populist movement and has now got jumped on by institutional investors playing each other and the only thing that's comparable to it is what was happening around tesla Mm, true so in both cases, a group of people have realised that if they get on the thing and they never get off, it will have a high value because there will be demand for the thing. So that's good. And in both cases, it's distorted the market. Um, but it hasn't broken the model. It hasn't broken markets. No, it hasn't. It's definitely given everyone a window into how markets work, though, right? Because a lot of... I mean, this stuff happened before. It wasn't like... Wall Street bets suddenly invented something new. The the kind of concept that you can play these games has happened ever since financialization of the markets. You know, just kind of post Bill Clinton's era on the back of, you know, Thatcher and Reagan's neoliberal privatization movement, you had the financialization of the markets and you've introduced a whole load of new actors who play games with stocks, right? Through leveraged instruments, through options, through a lot of very clever, fun games that have nothing to do with fundamentals. And then I think this is introduced, this is the what happens when you lift the curtain up. But it's really, you can't go back now. You can't go back and go, oh, but it's, but it's a brick and mortars store that sells video games because it's, the most popular brick and mortar stores that sells video games in the world, most famous at least. And now they've launched an e-commerce business. They're piggybacking on the latest next gen consoles and they have the ability to raise a ton of capital on the back of this ridiculous um, share They don't really have a business, do they, in the end? So when HMV kind of reinvented itself, it became a forum in a digital, in a, in a music world that had turned into digital products. HMV gave people a reason for it to exist because it became a place where you could get together with people They would do small gigs and performances actually in the store. Um, and they, they went big on uh, vinyl and community. Does HMV still exist? Yeah, well, probably still, yeah. I mean, there was probably a limit to how long that could, could last. With GameStop, the same thing applies. I mean, they could try to fix their e-commerce platform. They could become a, like a, a games workshop of gaming. But, uh, you know, ultimately, it's there's no point in that shop existing. So this current stock price, which is nearly back to its all-time high, it can't survive. It can't continue because ultimately the fundamentals will um, kind of undermine it, right? It's not like Tesla where they one day they'll switch on three or four gigafactories and as those cars roll off the production line and people buy them, the value will suddenly begin to make a bit more sense. GameStop can't get there. 
Oh, no, not with its current valuation. It's ludicrous, but it can remain irrational for a lot longer. There's plenty more. Um, it can survive long enough for these games to keep going on. And it can, if anything, it can put out positive news long enough for it to continue. And I'm not by any means endorsing it. I'm just saying it's, it's going to be a ride. It's not just going to disappear. Um, so to answer your question, my best performing stock this week was CIIG, which is the um, the SPAC shell for Arrival, the electric bus company. Oh, really? Yeah. Wait, they, they went public with a SPAC? Uh, yeah. yeah. Was it up 92%? <laughs> so speaking of um, stocks that did well this week... Uh, yeah, Roblox is uh, Roblox is live. The metaverse has come to uh, Wall Street. Okay, can you explain what Roblox is? Literally, one of the um, one of the questions that's pulled out and highlighted within within Google is, "Can a fifteen year old play Roblox?" That's and, really funny. You know, it's given rise to the Quora question on Quora. I'm fifteen and I still love Roblox. Is that wrong? <laughs> So you know that the CEO, it's David Basuki, that, that both the co-founders previously created a kind of real-world physics learning platform and noticed that people were using it to kind of play with each other uh, in, in the world. And then that sort of became the precursor to the idea of Roblox. I, I saw that. I saw that on one of their Where We Started videos. So back in 1989, they made this 2D modeling physics engine, I guess, what led to the Roblox platform. It's really interesting. The more I learn about it, the more I realize why it's got so much hype and momentum. You've got kind of the very youngest up and coming generation getting to grips with technology and gaming and entertainment. You've locked them at home for a year and they've seen the surge of users on the robot platform. And then what's really interesting is I didn't realize the majority of games are actually made by children as well yeah i mean this is what i was saying about user generated content so when you were talking about um not farmville what's the animal turnip based yes turnip based game game. uh massively multiplayer turnip based game uh when you're talking about animal crossing i was like okay so people have built like their own farm or their i you know their thing on the island um but within very limited parameters but in roblox you've got a much wider palette and much more you can do so you can create genuine games within within the metaverse so then i guess it's the it's the metaverse's rules that constrain how much you can innovate and where i'm going with this is when does it run out of kind of interest so when the next generation of five and six year olds comes in and looks at what's there and they go, yeah, but it's got no AR. So it's interesting there. I don't think that's the, the next level, like AR or VR. I think the next level is more dynamic stories, different possibilities from a graphics perspective, from a gameplay perspective. And I think that's probably where you see that peak at the moment of what do you say? Like, can you play at 15? There's probably a limit to how much you want to do that versus play Call of Duty or FIFA or whatever it is. Why should that be? Because there's some good first-person shooters in there. Like there's Doom ripoffs and so on. Yeah. So if you're a AAA game studio, you've got multi, multi-million multi dollar budget to spend on finely honing game mechanics and lots of um, monetized skins for all the characters. Like that product versus something that's been made collaboratively in Roblox by a group of a group of children who became teenagers who became young adults maybe continued to play it continued to develop it could one be as good as the other uh, one could have more creativity than the other one could one one could take more risks than the other so the AAA game studio would stop taking risks True, but Roblox isn't competing against a AAA game studio, right? Because they're not the creators of the games, they're just the platform. So really it's about attracting 
or not even attracting, allowing developers as new developers enter or developers get more experienced and grow older and they want to develop different games, giving them the tools to do so. And I think they can do that. Um, it's crazy that they're now at something like 32 million daily active users, which is which is just ridiculous. It's very, very sticky. And they're spending an average of almost two hours a day. And admittedly, that was in 2020 during a pandemic. So that will probably go down when people, when kids go back to school, I guess. But but you can see that in terms of, if you're looking at engaging entertainment content, Roblox is just killing it right now. Yeah. Maybe they're not monetizing it to the same level because they have a very different view on um, how they commercialize it. And also they have a much more stringent view on safety because of the very young audience. So they're probably not going down the kind of winging it of Facebook or or trying to have the kind of exploitative um, uh, monetization mechanics of some of these like uh, Candy Crush they're, Star they're games. They're not going to do loot they, boxes. No, it's very, it's very carefully curated the way they actually manage the whole monetization. And that's where I think they've got plenty of time to, to do a lot there. Um, so it sounds like you'll be buying Roblox. Already have. Already. So it's definitely overvalued when you compare it to sort of what Microsoft paid for Minecraft. How much did they pay for Minecraft? 2.5 billion my Microsoft spent on Minecraft. Um, right. And that was some time ago. So very difficult to compare because that was like 2014, right? Yeah. But it's more than 10x. Um, but I'm pretty sure Minecraft now as a component within Microsoft would, would command a much higher valuation than it currently does, right? And you Are people still playing Minecraft? I think it's still the most popular game in, in the world, right? In right. terms of use, um, daily active users. I mean, hence my questions, really. It's just hard to predict the longevity of any platform. Well, that's why it depends what's coming next and what that happens to that user base, right? If specific, user base... Specifically in gaming, it's very hard to predict the longevity of a particular genre of games. So I, I wonder if I'm supposed to compare Roblox to a franchise, like Ops Call of Duty, Mario Kart, or if I'm supposed to compare Roblox to a format platforming or massively multiplayer RPGs or if I'm supposed to be comparing Roblox to a true gaming platform a console so the N64 the Nintendo Switch so which of these things is it I don't think you can compare it to just one thing in some ways it resembles the App Store right they have the ability for any developers to build games and monetize those games through Robux in their kind of in-game currency but you have to go to the App Store because there's only one that's allowed, unless you're in China, on your platform, on your OS. But you don't have to go to Roblox. You could go, you could leave any day to a competing platform that just works better or is integrated to a payment system that you favor or has some kind of tie into the hardware that you're using, which happened to be um, Oculus Rift. True. Does it have the social component? Because I think since you know Xbox Live and PlayStation Network, I think the social component is what has been added to a lot of gaming, especially the ability not to have to just sit at your friend's house and play games in their living room, but actually do it completely over the internet. Now you can do that cross-platform from very young age with your friends on mm. Roblox. If they manage to get the next generation to grow up on that platform and have a essentially a recurring revenue model through, you know, subscription models for Robux or people who are trying game after game after game, the way they do with like the PlayStation Network stuff, I think it has a lot of scope to grow. We've drifted wildly off topic. I'm gonna yeah. get us back. So stimulus round three, one point nine trillion. I think that was the big news of the week, right? That... Yeah, nothing else happened this week that was talked about a lot. The big thing this week was definitely the stimulus package and how much was put into the stimulus and the amount of dollars that are now in circulation. What are your thoughts? About that, the biggest news story of the week. 
the stimulus package that was approved, the Biden stimulus package. What are my thoughts? Yeah, um, glad you asked because that's the thing. So do you want to talk about the Microsoft on. Act? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... So, yeah, Microsoft hack. I mean, I was paying attention during Solar Winds. This one nearly passed me by. So, there's been four vulnerabilities exploited. There is zero, zero day, zero day. Um, this one is so much bigger than the Solar Winds one. Right. So, a lot of companies, well, nearly everybody uses Microsoft Exchange Server. And because of these four zero day exploits, you can kind of go in and then insert some shells i don't understand what they are you can insert a web shell that allows you to basically just remotely access that exchange server and then what explore sideways <laughs> like go literally just can you send emails as other people can you read all the emails you, i think you can read all the emails and you can get access to all the emails that have been sent and that are held on that exchange server and i think from the limited amount that i've managed to figure out from this the thing that makes it quite fascinating is you just don't know the extent of the damage like it's really difficult to know how many organizations i think they were talking about i think some organizations have come out and said yeah we were affected but it's really hard to know the total extent right so if solar winds was backed by a russian hacking group associated with the russian government and this is produced by a hacking group associated with the chinese state Correct. And which has passed on details of how to do the hack to other state-friendly entities. Then my question is, where is the Indian hacking contingent that is state-backed? And when do they arrive on the scene? Wait, that, that's your question? Yeah, that's my actual question. <laughs> okay, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, so every country has its own cyber warfare division, right? Whether they like to admit it or not. That's inevitable that every country has some group probably a wing of the military that is specifically focused on trying to test and probe foreign nations cyber defense systems and some of the companies within those nations so i actually don't know what the rules are for that kind of engagement because this is pretty sophisticated clearly backed by China, although they don't admit it. And the damage it's done is is somewhat unknown at the moment, right? I know Microsoft have pushed out some patches. Everyone is updating their exchange servers to try and close this, essentially this zero day vulnerability. But I imagine there's a lot of very sensitive emails that have been leaked. So I think this is gonna be one of those stories that just keeps, keeps on going as people realize what's been taken, what's been accessed how it's been leaked. Yeah, I thought the thing with SolarWinds was that that company, SolarWinds, makes Orion that is used by a lot of different governments and government agencies. So it was like, it really went to the heart of the the, the data that was trying to be most protected and some treasury data and, and defense data and so on. Um, this, is, this could be literally anyone because everyone uses Microsoft Exchange and they'll have taken some precautions, but uh, Exchange Server... That's everyone. It's, it's does your organization use emails? <laughs> does it uh, use... <laughs> are you on Linux? No. Yeah. Does your organization email anyone else who uses emails? Because I think the whole thing is just, um, it's not just your organization at risk, right? It's any organization that you've emailed because your emails are probably on their exchange servers. And then um, I'm assuming a lot of these emails aren't encrypted or sent in a more secure way. So the odds are a lot of it will get leaked and unveiled over the coming weeks and months, right? It's weird. It didn't seem to um, make that big of a splash. I don't know what else was happening this week. Anyway, um, uh, what I want to know is who isn't sponsoring us this week? So we didn't have a not a sponsor last week, which was just a huge omission. But this week, we're definitely not being sponsored by a small pizzeria called Loro di Napoli. Which I've only discovered during lockdown. It's kind of weird. They're a family-run Italian pizzeria based in Ealing in West London. They've been there for like 22 years. And they've got a second branch in Hanwell, which is nearer where I... It's, it's just on the border of where delivery will actually deliver to from where we are. 
and they, they literally have the world's worst website but the world's best pizza all right so how do i how do i find the website what are they called lord napoli which is l apostrophe o r o d napoli meaning i think the gold of naples or something their website's really funny because the main website is actually just for some reason even though it's one i assume one family run run business their main website is just for the Ealing restaurant. And then it has a button that says, for the Hanwell restaurant, push this button. And you you follow that link. And as you'll see, it goes to one of those staging website pages, which is completely dormant and just shows you a whole load of random third-party listings instead of an actual website. So the only way to really understand where <laughs> yeah, you That is what happens. That, yeah. is, that is what happens. So can you recommend one of the dishes, please? Literally any. In fact, there's one that's a folded deep fried pizza, but it's in it's with that sourdough Neapolitan sourdough, and it, that's just remarkably delicious. But there's also one that's got I don't know all the Italian names, but one that's got anchovies, which is incredible. There's another one with their I think it's called Anduja sauce. So you know the kind of hot pepper sausage sauce. It's, yeah, it's just with what I call the Induja sauce. Induja, nice. Say all the letters. Anyway, literally incredible pizza. I think the salad verde, which is just not so much a salad as a giant lump of fresh mozzarella with olives and roasted aubergines and all the good stuff. Anyway, it's um it's amazing. World's worst website, um completely confusing delivery rules because occasionally it's out of range and then it's in range other weeks so we we kind of have to go by i guess whether it's someone cycling or a moped i don't know how that is actually worked out unfortunately they don't have a promotional discount code or anything so i'm thinking i'll just write them an email and just say we uh we featured you on this popular podcast have a listen thank you laura di napoli there'll be a link in the show notes by which i mean in your podcasting app, there's a bit where all the words are. There'll be a link there. So we should probably introduce this segment as it's This Week in Crypto. It is and This Week in Crypto, Jonathan. Nothing less. The top item you want to discuss is Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559. What were you going to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Beeple. <laughs> the Beeple thing. I'm not. Yeah, whatever. They raise money. Do you know that most of it's coming from um, uh, two people who run uh, a kind of a kind of fund that does NFTs and invests in NFTs and is a blockchain-based fund? Do you know the second highest bidder was Justin Sun, like the idiot who founded Tron? Essentially, it's vested interests trying to hype up their own game. <laughs> There is a huge amount of that. Um, yeah, there is a huge amount of that, no doubt. But fair play to Mike Winkleman, or, or Beeple, as I think he goes by. Um, I first saw him on the Corridor YouTube channel, um, which is like a YouTube channel of special effects people who try and do fun special effects short videos. And they brought him on... Um, for one episode to see if they in one day or not in one end, like two hours could do a digital piece of artwork um, that was as good as his. And he did one and they all, they all, they all did really good pieces. Um, But that was the first time I came across him and realized that he's one of these artists that for years has been doing one piece of work, which in his case is like digital artwork um, every single day without fail even during like the day that his wife gave birth to their child like he just keeps churning out these um these images and now has made it quite a phenomenal craft which is why i actually think whilst the whole price tag thing is ridiculous and yes there is a lot of vested interest hyping up the the price it's five thousand days of his work like when you actually look at it and it's it's no small feat so I think fair play. Yeah. And the um the auction winner who paid sixty nine million dollars for the first five thousand days is Meta Coven, 
is the alias of the founder of Metapurse. It was always going to be someone crypto rich, right? Because you have to pay using Ethereum. So I think whatever happened, it was going to be someone in the crypto space. I expected it to go for sort of like six or seven million, given that his last one on Nifty Gateway sold for 3.5 million. I just felt like, you know, it's Christie's, it's going to be bigger. I think clearly the hype train and what seems like a bidding war between two people ended up being this ridiculous 69 point something million figure. But good for him. You know, it's doing that type of one a day digital artwork is is intense and doing it for years and years. And he's it's clearly it's a foray into what digital art's going to be like in the future. I don't know whether it's all gonna be this overhyped, but yeah. It shows there's an audience for, for it. Absolutely. And for Metacoven as well as winning the artwork, it's really planted a flag in a space that now people can say, Oh yeah, okay, so legitimate Christie's money, certainly a lot of it. And is it art? Well, you know, that's that's why we get to have a conversation. And then uh, subsequent artwork, less high profile. But the, the art market, strange thing that it is, can now recognise this as having arrived. Um, and, and if I may, I'd like to read out to you from the bottom of the About page within Metapurse. To collect stories and catalyse change. Hubristic? Sure. Quixotic? Maybe. But having lived in these interesting times, when someone asks, what did you do about it? The answer is Metapurse. <laughs> That's profound. So, I, this keeps coming up, but there's been some uh, quite reasonable points made about the energy consumption of Ethereum and Bitcoin mining. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's been raised uh, ever since the beginning, really. So if this is going to become um, widespread in its use, then what's the environmental impact of all of the, the mining that needs to happen to keep it going? It's funny that this time round, the narrative and the kind of... Um... I'd call them like anti-narratives, have been different. Last time you had this general view that it was worthless and that what are these? These are they kind of used for, you know, money laundering and buying drugs off the dark web and it's all made of nothing anyway, so it's got no intrinsic value and all these other things came. They were much more prominent in 2017 where there was a big general hype cycle, right? You don't hear as many of those arguments. You sometimes hear stuff about people claiming it's used for illegal purposes, but that's very easily debunked. So I think people don't go for it as much anymore. And instead, there seems to be this uh, this kind of misrepresentation of Bitcoin. And I'm increasingly seeing it with Ethereum as well because of the NFT arguments um, about how you should boycott it because of its environmental impact and energy consumption. And people often use, oh, as much energy as, as Argentina or, you know, combination of small states. And it's for nothing. Yeah, I don't think it's really grounded on a lot of strong evidence. The energy consumption bit is, totally. But in terms of where that energy is from, what it's been using for, and the comparisons that are made, it's always a bit misleading. So with Bitcoin, they'll always compare it to sort of like Visa and then try and explain that it's a light-for-light -light comparison of the energy consumption, which... Which I think is a bit unfair when you're comparing what is a full end-to-end -end decentralized settlement layer of Bitcoin where you have finality when you actually pay someone that replaces essentially an entire financial system and you compare it to Visa, which is just the point of sale piece that isn't a replacement for the banking infrastructure behind it, all of the counterparties that actually are part of that financial transaction from the point where it's come from your bank account to the actual merchant and cleared like all of that stuff is kind of ignored when they compare against visa the other thing about the bitcoin and ethereum one is i think where the energy comes from a lot of it now is coming from renewables right it's not coming from coal power plants and there's an incentive for that right there's a lot of renewable energy that is trapped and not really accessible for human means it's in geothermal or 
hydroelectric um, sources that you can't easily transport to human populations. So being able to actually use essentially what is otherwise just not wasted, but just unused energy and use it to mine Bitcoin and secure that entire network actually kind of makes sense in many respects. But what are you, what are your thoughts on it anyway? Um, yeah, so I was just trying to find out where where it was on the scale of things, and it's somewhere between Ukraine and Argentina. I think Ethereum's is a much smaller footprint, right? So maybe the comparison should be how much energy does gold mining consume? That would be a very interesting comparison for Bitcoin. Um, yeah, the answer is four hundred seventy-five million gigajoules of electricity equal to about 131 or 132 terawatt hours. So um, I'm glad you asked. And how much more is that than Bitcoins? Bitcoins would be about 127 terawatt hours. So Bitcoin, 127 terawatt hours. Gold mining as a process, 132 terawatt hours. Gold mining consumes more electricity than Bitcoin. But what consumes more electricity than, than both Bitcoin and gold mining? is um, the entire banking system encompassing brick-and-mortar branches, printing facilities, computer servers, ATMs, and transportation, which consumes 140 terawatt-hours. So, you know, that is, and I, I need to cite the source here, an article from two days ago in Forbes called Bitcoin's Energy Consumption is a Highly Charged Debate Who's Right? And those estimates um, are sourced from various places. <laughs> Interesting. But I guess that's gold mining. That doesn't account for the transportation of that gold, the storage, the custodying, the auditing, if there was any auditing. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there was a story kicking around a few years ago about how every Google search requires as much electricity as it does to make a cup of tea. And then this year, Google started putting a green leaf at the bottom of its um, mm. main search page saying that it's been carbon neutral since 2007 and it was obviously it was disputed at the time that um, a google search query required that much electricity uh, i think uh, the question to ask is yeah so obviously first of all it is bad that um, the process for maintaining bitcoin as a working infrastructure uses that much electricity and it should probably be somehow reduced same goes for ethereum ethereum's when it moves to proof of stake, will reduce by ninety odd percent or something. Yeah. So, but even if it didn't, um, there's a really there's a kind of, and I'm not I don't want to sound like someone who's like doesn't believe in climate change or I'm like definitely not in that mindset. But I think there is a kind of moralistic view that gets taken on a lot of this in terms of what is the right thing to use energy for, and versus what is the wrong thing, um, and you start going down that rabbit hole with this in a kind of, well, I read this really interesting one um, around the environmental issues of crypto art and NFTs. It was a very long, very well-researched piece that understood how Ethereum works, how NFTs are minted, how the whole space technically operates. And I think a lot of the numbers were correct, but the entire argument boiled down to a moralistic view of, well, it's wrong to use energy for this kind of entire process of you know minting these tokens and tokenizing art forms and that really the energy should be used for other things um that are more socially rewarding and it went on and it, it kind of covered the whole space with i think some degree of accuracy but then i couldn't help but just realizing this was a medium post that runs on the medium platform, which when you look at their own analysis of how their platform set up, it's it's not as clear cut as this person liked to think. You know, this is running on a number of AWS servers with its own CDN, its own caching ed servers for a lot of like distribution of its content. Like the whole piece from a moralistic stance of I want to share my creative artwork, which I've written with the world. Um, ignoring the, the realisation that that has its own carbon footprint and its own energy consumption as well. And I think that's why it's really difficult with the moral argument to try and go down that route. I completely agree. Where possible, use renewables, reduce energy consumption, use your energy for the things that are deemed most valuable. But if it's going to be a kind of, well, 
my stuff is more morally relevant than your stuff, it can be very difficult, I think. And that's where I think the article, whilst it was very re- well researched and we may be able to just link to it because um, it had a lot of useful information, it, it just falls down that, that rabbit hole of basically having moral superiority whilst doing the exact same thing, but for their own cause. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you can use sort of three different views on how to decide these things. So you can you can regulate to say this resource allocation is not in the interest of the planet. You can you can let the market decide. So you could create a carbon market, or you could some other market mechanism, or you can do a sort of hearts and minds thing where you say you really need to stop. Uh, you know, I'm going to shame everyone who's driving um, a big diesel gas guzzling SUV. Uh, and use social pressure uh, and, and, and opinions are going to change and there'll be a mindset shift. Um, with that last one as applied to Bitcoin, it's it's a funny one because it's not that kind of a thing. It's not like um, it's less clear cut. Am I driving an electric car or a diesel car? It's not like, you know, is am I running the world's financial system through fiat currency or am I going to decentralize the world's financial system and run it on Bitcoin? It, it doesn't, it's never been an individual's choice and it's, um, and they're not comparable things and they're going to coexist. So it's hard to have that kind of a discussion about it. So then you, you fall back on the other two, you know, like, can we, can we create uh, markets for carbon sequestration? Can we, can we regulate Bitcoin out of existence? Because all the numbers show that it's, uh, it's terrible for our planet. And if we if we get to that point, then maybe that's the kind of conversation we should be having. We'd have to apply it to everything, right? Like every alternative mechanism, including people's commutes to work and scope three emissions and all the rest of the stuff that happens. Which is why it's really it's really difficult when you've got and, and I I like that the discussions are happening around here. I just think it's um it's coming from a good place in terms of looking at the environmental impact and wanting to make the right decisions and um, where possible put pressure on you know shifting to renewable energy sources or shifting to a proof of stake mechanism where you can that's still secure that reduces your energy consumption and moves away from proof of work but I think you just run into some pitfalls when it's like you said a, a truly moralistic preference so so this is this is from um, this is a medium post from medium talking about their stack. And if you look at what it takes to actually run their entire platform, it runs on a combination of AWS and Google Cloud Platform for resilience. It uses Akamai as its content delivery network. It uses Sumo Logic and Datadog for all of its cloud log management and monitoring. And then it has an entirely separate platform all for doing its advertising space, running of semantic analysis from Grapeshop, programmatic data analytics from MetaMarkets, and then third-party verification providers from, got a whole collection of them. And a lot of them, whilst they have some metrics on their sustainability goals and their environmental impacts, it's just an enormously complex space of, of a lot of energy usage for articles like this one, which criticised um, Ethereum's usage, but also a whole load of other things that have different topics about the food you ate for breakfast or whatever you know sports team you follow and i think it's going to be very difficult where you've got those kind of platforms to pick and choose at a platform level medium now is looking a lot more like the infrastructure of the internet because of where <laughs> it is and it's a bit more embedded now it's, it's got a certain place within the international conversation should we say um right so the same is not true of bitcoin it hasn't become established in people's minds as part of the financial infrastructure when it when it is you know, you'll be so, you know, you're kind of having a go at the platform that the person chose to write on and saying, ah, you're in a glass house as well. <laughs> but it's it's never going to become a toss up between one or the other for electricity consumption. Um, well, no, exactly. Right. Because they both. Because they're both really different things yeah. and they will both at one point become come to be regarded as the infrastructure. So the moment it's possible to disparage bitcoin's energy usage in moralistic terms because it looks like um a discretionary spend it looks like an extravagance and so and it and maybe it is maybe it is at this point now would be the time to step in regulators <laughs> but you can't actually well that's a separate one about being unable to switch off the um the other thing that's really interesting though that i think it isn't given credit for is you actually know exactly the amount of energy that bitcoin 
consumes. You can't, even Medium can't tell you how much it costs to how run that platform in energy. energy Bitcoin consumes? How's the hash rate encoded into each block? And how do you know what energy was powering that hashing power? And how do you know its green credentials? So the, the energy providing it's an interesting one. I think a lot of that is um, has it's taken a lot of different research to try and work out the, the energy sources, because obviously that's not part of what's in each block. Power consumption, you can see from minor hash rates, right? So you can get a pretty close approximation there. But yeah, you, you're right. Understanding how much of it comes from coal power or renewables. I think there's been a quite a few different bodies that have done research there to get pretty good figures and the majority comes from renewables not because they're all green fingers but because it just is cheaper and it's untapped energy that they can access and that's why a lot of it happens in china right because china whilst not being a big fan of bitcoin are quite open to people in the middle of nowhere using hydroelectric and geothermal power sources to mine bitcoin you can't say that for most cloud internet platforms or most things that run on the internet it's very, very difficult to even get close to understanding the energy consumption. They need to put a green leaf on the bottom oh, of really? the block. Um, I've got a question for you, and um, it's going to get very, very dry and technical very fast. Um, could you do a fun version of what it means that Ethereum is um, revolutionizing itself using a protocol called EIP-1559? <laughs> that's just the best way to ever that's the funnest way to introduce um introduce this so firstly eip ethereum improvement proposal 1559 i guess they've had a lot of other proposals before why is it exciting so last few weeks you and i have joked at times about ethereum gas prices and gas is that weird amount of ethereum that you have to pay to initiate a transaction right that basically becomes a fee that gets paid to the miners and it just varies and fluctuates. And if you've ever used any applications that are running on the Ethereum network, it's pretty much guesswork <laughs> where how much you'll pay for a transaction, anywhere between less than a dollar through to hundreds of dollars. And you kind of, at the moment, have a bidding war where people who are willing or able to pay more for their transaction get picked by miners and their stuff gets mined first and if you don't want to pay stupid amounts you kind of try and set a limit but then it means who knows if your transaction will go through and how long it will take and how yeah. much so this week is an pay. example i was right. trying to move some some synthetic around and uh, i first of all paid seven dollars and the transaction failed so i sent it again and paid sixteen dollars which was the slow <laughs> setting in metamask and it, it went through and, you know, it's never cost $16 in transfer wise to send a small amount of money. Uh, I also don't really understand what happened with the first transaction. So, Am I saying goodbye to that $7.29? Am I ever <laughs> going to see that again? Or did it come back? I don't know. Because the transaction failed. Do you get refunded for failing? No. No, that's no, just don't. gone. <laughs> um, no, if it's been broadcast to network and if it's, if it, if it's, it's probably gone. <laughs> Um, if it's this been accepted, but then if it's been accepted, it would get processed. I'm, I'm confused. No, it was out of gas. Oh, okay. Then probably you didn't get charged for it. Um, anyway, it doesn't solve scaling. It doesn't solve the gas fees. The best way of describing this is it makes it a better user experience because instead of having that crazy situation that you just described that quite frankly, no one should accept because it's just ridiculous. You have a base fee determined by the network that will be the base amount that your transaction will cost. And you'll know what that is. That will be determined by the previous blocks that have been processed and that will make it a much better user experience. And then you have essentially a tip, which is the tip you're willing to pay to Ethereum miners to process your transaction a bit faster. So it, it shifts the whole auction bidding war instead of it just being some just weird however much people are willing to pay to get stuff through and it gets more congested and just goes higher and higher there will be a base fee and then a tip which changes that whole dynamic and makes it hopefully better for you as a user to know what you're actually paying in transaction fees but important to note doesn't make it cheaper doesn't make it more scalable does not make it quicker it is simply a better user experience 
However, the fun bit for all of the gold people and the Bitcoiners and everything else out there that's that's focused on sort of scarcity and, and hedges against inflation is that that base fee gets burned. So in simple terms, every time you pay that transaction, it doesn't go to the miner in full. The base fee gets simply burnt from existence. It no longer ceases to be. And that scales with the amount of transactions on the network. So theoretically, Ethereum could reach a point very soon of being either non-inflationary or even deflationary, which would at that point make it superior economically to Bitcoin. And that's a very exciting and interesting development. Did I make that fun? I feel like that was really dry and boring. You jazz it up with some sound effects, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you helped me. I thought I thought it, I thought it was a bigger deal than that. But they're burning it. They're burning the the gas fee, and that's deflationary. Is basically what I've taken away from that. And that's that is a good thing. And then also, as you said, user experience a yeah. less, a bit, little bit less awful. Um, but it's not as profound as I thought it was going to be. Um, I can I can see that the second order effects will be profound. Um, I, I've got a question for you: shitcoin or fake coin? So. Um, are you ready? Okay, for it. Okay, so uh, lemon coin. L e m o n. Lemon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And guava coin. G u a v. Oh, just guava. Um, what do they do? So those are both coins, and they can be used in a variety of ways. Um, but but uh, neither of them are securities under the Howey test. Okay, that's the least amount of information possible. Um, They're fungible. I mean, lemon coin sounds more entertaining. I'm going to guess that's a shit coin. And the other one is just guava coin can't possibly be real. That's okay, got to be made you, you were right. So you, um, so guava coin is the fake coin. Failed and lemon the coin is test. the shit coin. Well done. I've got a fun... I've got three for you um, to make this less of a toss-up. Your first one is called vision vsn is its short code and the best way of describing this is it's like um it's like a portfolio tracker and it's like the coin for that portfolio tracker um keep going the next coin <laughs> is wonder which is w a n d a is it short and that is a cryptocurrency for travelers which is really cool because you can share secret messages in certain locations and it's recorded on a blockchain and someone else can come and kind of when they're in that location they can read the message that you've you've shared so it's it's how does wonder like no no how does that what what is it about is it like geocaching what is it about your particular geolocation that triggers the blockchain to release the message when you're near it how does that even operate? No, it's like I am sending it to you. I'm not sending it to just the, the, the location, but you yeah. can only read it when you're in that Why? location. How does a wallet operate that only it? What is the smart contract mechanism that allows it to only open when you're in a given location? Does it use foam, for example? Foam, the I GPS replacement coin. Don't know what that is. Right. Maybe that you should be a looking at coin. foam. Yep, no. But anyway, a super cool use case doing really well. for location based messaging. Um, and then the third one, so we've had vision and wonder, and the third one is Hydra, which I guess the only way I can describe this is it's an, it's kind of just an open source proof of state blockchain. And it's just really, really special. Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, I mean, first of all, really special. Well done. And... (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that someone has been watching WandaVision <laughs> and I don't know uh, what as about. part of uh, like what is probably your favourite TV series, um, as part of that, I'm going to say, so have you given me two shit coins and one fake coin? Or what have you done? Or am, I, am I just supposed to guess the ratios? You're just supposed to guess. Because this last week you it. gave me two, they were both actually real so they're both shit coins yeah that was an accident well this is intentional <sighs> right okay um so wonder is definitely fake so wonder is the fake coin um now um between 
Vision and Hydra. And I'm going to say that Vision is real, so it is a shitcoin. Um, and Hydra, if I knew anything about WandaVision, I would know that Hydra is a character in WandaVision. And, They're the uh, bad guy organization. In right. Marvel. And that's why I'm going to go with... But I've got a feeling that it's actually real. So <laughs> I'm going to say it's a shitcoin. Okay, I'm super impressed. You're right. you're right. Um, yeah. You're right. I didn't want it to be real. Um, yeah. No, it's because... probably one of those more things where you you looked it up and it turns out actually that that's happened to me a lot because basically anything that you <laughs> think of has been made a coin. By the way, just a quick follow up, real time follow up. Lemon coins price. Don't know if you can see that. Have we it's... pumped it? No, it's it's zero. <laughs> it has been zero for the past year, and um, three years ago. It held values as high as, um, well, its all-time high was five cents. That's amazing. But that that was a long time ago, actually. That was um, that was in in January, twenty eighteen. It got to one cent. Jonathan, there's nothing particularly special about the way that this episode of the podcast ends. So all I got to say to you is thank you. It's been an excellent pod. Likewise. See you next week. Next week. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, Hey, I like talking to you. And so, from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech and stuff on the half Caucasian podcast. Doug is drinking a blue dog IPA. Jonathan's got a Negroni. Right, they didn't in the corporate world that night, they rocked the party.